I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's guest is Dr. Aram Sinreich, a media professor, author, and musician. He currently serves as Chair of Communication Studies at American University's School of Communication. His work focuses on the intersection of culture, law, and technology, with an emphasis on subjects such as emerging media and music. He's the author of three books, Mashed Up, The Piracy Crusade, and The Essential Guide to Intellectual Property. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious psychoanalytic perspectives, politics, and poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. I was wondering about the difference between this idea of the cut and the idea of remix because somebody was talking about how in order for something to be art, it has to be something that the artist had intentionally decided was going to be art and that's what made art art and I like fundamentally do not agree with that only because I think there's plenty of people that just like compulsively make art but I guess those would be outsider artists. So, of course, there's lots of different, like, threads to those kinds of arguments and debates. Um, but then I was thinking about this idea of cut-ups and remix and how maybe the cut-ups are, the, are from the century before when people needed to kind of cut down the system and, like, deconstruct the narrative. And then now we're in a time where everything is, like, being deconstructed and we need to, like, put it together in new ways. So I, I love cases like this because what you just said is exactly the premise of this uh, little article that I wrote on Sounding Out, um, I don't know, back in 2012 or 2013 or something like that, where I said exactly that, that mashups and cutups are, even though they often get compared to each other because they're, uh, if you were to watch someone making a mashup or watch someone making a, a cutup, you wouldn't really necessarily notice much of a difference other than that one is digital and the other is analog. Um, but from an epistemological standpoint, they're actually totally opposite to one another for all of the reasons that you say, right? Cut-ups were a form of resistance against the hegemony of the master narrative um, and against the hegemony of, well, what uh, what Bill Burroughs called control, right? The kind of um, linguistic, ocular-centric vision of a unitary worldview um, that has no basis in empirical reality to the best that we understand it. Um, but that was so instrumental to maintaining political power during the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, And the mashup is, as you say, this um, largely organic response to um, the decontextualization of cultural information in the the age of um, 
infinite digital platforms and networks uh, and an attempt to kind of create a language whereby you could resuture meaning together through the the collection and uh, an arrangement of, of disparate cultural sources. So I, I think I think you're dead on uh, accurate. And it's so I don't know about you, but like I, I know that you're, um, you know, a, a mid-career scholar like I am. So I, 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 you know, when I was when I was a newer scholar and even before I got into academia, when I was just an aspiring public intellectual, um, you know, I was so covetous of my ideas. Like I'd get really upset if somebody else expressed an idea of mine in a public forum and I'd be like, oh, I missed my shot. Like I had a window to, to own this idea and I didn't. And then in part because so much of my work is about the idiocy of the concept of the ownership of ideas, but also just having it reached a certain stage in, in, uh, in my life arc, um, I'm so excited now when I see ideas that I have that I that um, that I either haven't had the chance to express fully in a public forum or that haven't um, had a big footprint in the public being expressed by other people because the ideas are what matter, not the people who express them. Um, and so like I was I was just filled with delight at seeing your response to that to that thread um, because that means that the idea has at least twice as many. Um, brains thinking it and uh, and mouths and and fingers expressing it as it did before. No, I love that, and I think that I think that what's happening uh, in the digital age. I mean, you guys, I guess I, I found you out from David Gunkel, and you guys are coming from more this tech side of things, whereas I'm. I'm historically not very tech oriented at all, but I feel like clearly in this day and age like everybody has to be like everybody has to understand politics and everybody has to understand technology <laughs> or else we're having going to have even more problems you know and so i'm trying to educate myself more and more about technology but i i've been thinking about it from like a psychoanalytic point of view and the realm of the digital and digital media and how this is like a perfect way for people to understand kind of psychoanalytic ideas more because you can see like how people are projecting their ideas ideas on one another so clearly and you can see everybody kind of developing this ego that they want everyone to see which is not the person that they really are underneath and that sort of thing you can see them all like playing out so clearly um, and so I think that yeah I don't know I think that the, the digital world is more important than ever it's so interesting that you'd say that because you know I feel like we've Freud and obviously post Freudian critiques of Freud um, were such a dominant way of understanding human action and social organization and cultural engagement during the 20th century. But I, there was this kind of um, this uh, this scientific turn or this technophiliac turn around the end of the 20th century where, you know, first we 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 saw these people who wanted to understand human cognition and communication, putting subjects into fMRI devices and tracking the flow of blood around their brains. And then, you know, right now we're in the middle of this era of big data and modeling and the kind of money ball approach to understanding social action where, you know, every person has their kind of digital homunculus. That's like a collection of uh, facts about them that are used to, uh, for the purposes of predictive analytics. And now we're on the verge of entering into this kind of AI slash neural interface you know, uh, portion that combines the worst of fMRI with the worst of data mining uh, to create these these uh, these you know highly detailed 
digital models of uh, individual personalities, um, which is problematic for so many reasons, politically, intellectually, um, ethically. Um, it's it's interesting that you'd make a stand for the kind of psychoanalytic perspective in the, in the face of this, you know, this this overarching myth of total knowledge that the that the age of data has has given us. Yeah, that's a really good point. I never thought about it that way. <laughs> um, I think it, so, what that, would you that, say? that you would claim that these platforms are actually aiding in our understanding of, of the um, of the psychoanalytical perspective. Yeah, I think they could. I think for at least the individuals interfacing with them, maybe not the way their information is being used from the other side of the interface. <laughs> but I think uh, yeah, I think the the way that like when you talk about like Lacan's mirror stage and the way that the ego develops that the identity develops, um, I feel like it's so clear. But I mean, that might be because I'm a psychoanalyst, so I just see these things everywhere. Um, but I feel like it's a good opportunity for analysts since it's such a like very small kind of niche field um, that doesn't have as much of an outreach as I, as I would like it to now. Um, I think it's a good opportunity for psychoanalytic ideas to get out there more, um, like kind of explaining them through the way that people can see uh, see them at play every day in their interactions on, on social media and that sort of thing. But I feel like there's maybe a lot less of a cultural liter literacy in that mode of uh, analysis than there was half a century ago. Yeah. You know, you go back and you read like, even like popular fiction or journalism from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and people are dropping uh, the language of psychoanalysis into their daily conversations and really thinking about their interactions with other people and about their own self-understanding through that lens. And now, you know, we're in the age of like BuzzFeed personality tests, like which Jedi are you? Um, and so I, I don't mean to suggest like it, it, there's like a, a linear like you know, diminution of the uh, of the public sphere. I just feel like uh, the metaphors through which we understand ourselves have really changed. And in order for to achieve what you're hoping, you, you'd have to find some way to reintroduce that literacy and the basic concepts of psychoanalysis into into the public at large. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to do with my podcast. <laughs> I should I should warn that full disclosure like I am I am a, I am a dilettante in in psychoanalytical theory like I know what Kant's mirror stage is but I I wouldn't claim to to be an expert in your field no of course um, I'm I'm on that side you don't have to be um, but yeah no it's definitely decreased because because of the introduction introduction of psych psychopharmaceuticals that like was a direct hit to the field of psychoanalysis everybody just started prescribing psychopharmaceuticals instead and talk therapy kind of went out the window. But I also think people are getting frustrated with um, being like overprescribed things and so that talk therapy is having um, a little bit of a comeback right now, hopefully. It might just be around where I see things, but hopefully it's, it's having a bit more sway than it used to or it has in the past couple decades. Um, but one of the things I really loved about your article um, that you sent from that Twitter thread was that it was really fun for me to read because I'm probably, I guess, around the same age. So also 
I remember like when all these different things that you were talking about, like the girl talk and these mashups were starting to happen like right around nine, around 9-11, around the end of yeah. 99 and around the beginning of the 2000s. And so it was really fun because I hadn't thought about all these kinds of things, but they were really like big phenomena when they were happening. And it's really great to see how they've like turned into like, now there's like philosophy about them, you know, instead of just like we were all just having fun listening to this great music, you know. For sure. I mean, it, it, it began like in this respect, remix is very similar to other subcultural styles in that it began as oppositional and resistant. And then it became uh, kind of a signification of uh, of a of a broader subculture. And then it just, you know, ultimately got reincorporated into mainstream aesthetics and logics in a way that it's now completely invisible um, or largely invisible. You know, like I, I teach classes on things like copyright and um, musical cultures and industries and digital culture. And even up to five years ago, I would reserve a class section towards the end of each of those classes um, focused on remix and say, well, now that remix has changed all the rules, how do we rethink about this stuff? And I don't do that anymore because my students are not really aware of remix per se. Actually, um, my friend and colleague Pat After Heidi and I and a couple of other people just submitted an article to a journal um, based on we this is uh, I can't wait for this article to come out. But basically, we looked at um, about 20, 25 different search terms that are related to both copyright and remix. And we looked at the curves of um, the popularity of those terms over the entire 15 year scope of Google Trends from 2004 through 2019, and basically discovered that when you look at the kind of public imagination surrounding copyright and its relationship to digital culture, there are these three very distinct phases. And there's this one that is just beginning to, to come to its end. It's already crested in 2004, which is the kind of like techno um, hacker culture like approach like Richard Stallman like approach to like open licensing as a as a form of you know and Lawrence Lessig as a form of kind of freedom and opposition to the hegemony of like intellectual property and and big tech and then you have this middle period that that kind of grows up around the early 2000s uh, and then falls off very steeply in the mid-teens which is the kind of remix era where people are searching for things like remix and mashup and creative commons license and they're kind of interested in in using these tools to be makers and then that all disappears starting around 2013-2014 which is just exactly the moment when social media platforms begin to integrate remix into their interface so you start getting like snapchat like face filters and face swap and all that stuff and, you know, this notion that Remix is just another filter, just another set of options, and same for Creative Commons for that matter, just another set of options that you would check a box for when you are engaging in your configurable somewhere between consumption and, and production media behaviors, um, that makes Remix invisible. Like people are no longer seeking it out or searching for it because it's on every TV show you'd want to see. It's on every app interface you'd want to use. Um, there's never a time that Remix is outside from or apart from the mainstream media experiences of everyday consumers. And that's both a victory and, um, you know, something of a tragedy because with that incorporation, you, you do lose a lot of the kind of resistant uh, capacity for Remix. 
not all of it. I actually have another article. I don't mean to sound like I'm just hyping my own articles. No, I want to hear about them. That's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have another article that I just published with um, with this great musicologist named Ragnar Brovig Hansen from University of Oslo, where we looked at um, Trump remixes that used uh, both um, audio and visual uh um, material from Trump's campaign in 2016 and popular music that were posted to YouTube during the 2016-2017 um, cycle. And um, we analyzed like dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And what we found was this very consistent rhetoric, uh, political rhetoric uh, of Remix, like very specific ways in which Remix gets used to serve political ends in sometimes a resistant capacity, but also sometimes a very hegemonic one. Um, so we had to come up with a language for it. So we called things like um, witnessing, right? If you have Trump saying, we'll make Mexico build the wall and we'll make them pay for it, um, sampling that and putting it into a remix, even if it seems like a joke or humorous or whatever, you're essentially bearing witness to something that's happened on camera. Right. And using the remix as a method to kind of bring more people's attention to this thing that actually happened in reality. Um, but by the same token, there are these other methods um, like what we call noisification, where, um, you know, there's this uh, this famous uh, clip of, of Trump going bing, bong, bong, bing, bing, which you've probably seen. And all these people have it's become a verb you, like they've bing bonged songs. So they've taken that clip and they've auto-tuned Trump to sing different songs like the Mario theme song or the Pokemon theme song or what have you, just with the syllables bing bong. And we see that as actually serving the opposite end, which is kind of depriving him of his voice and using him in this kind of digital puppetry um, in a way that both highlights the senselessness of what he says and also kind of does this, you know, what what the situations would call a kind of detournment where you're 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 sending his signifier into a different signified altogether. Um, anyway, we we came up with this whole kind of taxonomy of different um, rhetorical methods, none of which could have happened had remix not become a mature uh, cultural form. That's amazing. You said something in there that really caught my attention. That was like at the same time that you're. Um consuming and producing like you like with I don't know a snapchat or something but you're like consuming these apps or whatever at the same time you're producing content I never thought about this at this in this way yeah that that was the whole reason why in mashed up which was um, pretty closely based on my dissertation work which I finished back in in 07 so this is like way old stuff mm -hmm. um, but but my argument was that at that time was that the language that was coming out uh, which was then kind of because of Lessig largely coalescing around the language of remix, that was missing half of the equation, right? Because what was happening was not only people riffing or like doing their own take on something that was out there. What was happening was a breakdown of the fundamental ontologies of industrialized society. This distinction between artist and audience, between producer and consumer, between public and private, all of these distinctions which were instantiated in the infrastructure of cultural engagement uh, and in our laws and in our technologies, as the STS scholars are great at pointing out, they were no longer feasible because what people were doing didn't fit into either of these categorical polarities. And so there's all this gray area opening up 
which violated the law and violated the economics and violated the terms of use of the software and hardware, not because people were criminals or because they wanted to, even because they were necessarily critical or resistant of power, but because the opportunity lent itself and we didn't have a language or even a cultural logic that permitted uh, granting any validity to those gray areas. So I called that, instead of remix, I called it configurable culture and configurability as a way to try to create a, um, uh, a new language that would encapsulate those many different possibilities opened up in that space between the two polarities. Yeah, and I love that. Uh, thank you. David Gunkel talks about you talking about that in his book, <laughs> the Remixology book, and that's what caused me to order your book, which I don't have yet, but it's coming. Um, oh, you got uh, the hard copy. But he keeps, yeah, but he keeps talking about how you talk about this configurable culture, and I'm like, that is genius. Like, that's like, yeah, it's perfect. Thank you. It's, it's ironic you use that word because like so much of uh, that book is trying to destroy the myth of genius. And the, so I, I have all this stuff about. So so basically what I did in that book was I, I laid out the, um, the theoretical groundwork that we were just talking about. And then I decided to talk to people who were on the front lines and figure out how they were resolving these irresolvable gray areas between the two polarities. And in, in that case, because it was uh, the mid 2000s. Uh, it was largely DJs, mashup DJs, but also mixtape and EDM DJs and hip hop DJs. And I basically asked them, you know, you can't ask them like, what is your epistemological approach to reconciling the polarity, you know, the polarities of industrial capitalism? Um, so instead, I'd say, like, what do you think is original? Like, and, and who, how, how, like, what makes something original or unoriginal when it's entirely based on samples? Um, or when would you say you're performing and when would you say you're composing? Or do you think of yourself as an artist? And then I'd kind of listen to what they had to say and I ended up doing a lot of kind of discursive analysis on the back end. Um, and uh, it was really interesting having access to those people on the front lines because so much of what they had to deal with in 2003, four, five, six was um, was uh, augured what the rest of society would have to deal with as more and more social institutions changed under the logic of the network to these non-binary uh, um, epistemologies. So, um, so I ended up abstracting these kinds of takeaways uh, that I thought were relevant far beyond the world of, of music and even far beyond the world of remix, things like you know, the, the, um, the collision of public and private. Um, or what I call DJ consciousness, which is essentially a riff on uh, Du Bois' notion of, uh, of double consciousness, this, this notion that you're always kind of hearing yourself from outside uh, while you're experiencing yourself as a, you're, you're basically, you have to reconcile subjective and objective in your uh, presentation of self and in your cultural engagement. And it's been fascinating in the decades since the book came out to, to watch all of these things that were so apparent in the musical culture of, of the time, but not apparent in our political or public culture, becoming normalized and becoming standardized. And so much of the hand-wringing that's, that's now happening um, was entirely predictable within that particular subculture. Um, anyway, I, I do find it endlessly fascinating. But, but, but part, of what, um, part of what I was arguing was that the concept of genius, which was this romantic ideal, um, had no place in a configurable world, right? Because we no longer either have the necessity or the capacity 
to assign a single individual the credit for the expression of an idea. I mean, it's always been a myth, but you were able to sustain the myth by putting a book between two covers and selling it over a shelf or by screening a movie at a theater where people had to sit quietly in the dark and just experience it. Um, or you could say the same for a concert hall. Um, and this breakdown between the consumption production dichotomy reveals what has always been true, which is that the production of meaning is a uh, collaborative, communal and consensual act that uh, it, it's fallacious to ascribe to a single individual, and therefore the notion of genius um, is, uh, is not only uh, meaningless, it's counterproductive. It only serves to reinforce antiquated power structures and economic and legal arrangements. I like that. That makes perfect sense. I won't say it's genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a lot of people. So it's a great ask, configuration. Like, <laughs> I would ask the DJs. I'd say, you know, do you think there's such a thing as as genius? And they'd say, no. They're like people have genius moments and they're genius ideas, mm. but they're no geniuses, you know. But then when I would ask um, record industry people who's a genius, they'd be like, oh, P Diddy. Sean Whoever sells, helps, sells the most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Makes them the most money. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Which is it's, in the definition. Right, exactly. Whoever is the easiest to like commodify. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, package. But it's interesting that DJs are having that kind of struggle because it reminds me of what was happening like a hundred years earlier when people started making collages and, and, you know, actually cutting out papers and magazines and sort of thing. And that wasn't considered art um, at the time. And of course, now it is. But yeah, it's like a, another aspect of a similar thing. For sure. I mean, in, in Mashed Up, as you'll see when you read it, like I actually trace uh, some of these back to some of these... Um, uh, tensions back to pre-digital moments. And I talk about, you know, Duchamp and I talk about Brancusi. Um, and in my new book, in the Essential Guide to Intellectual Property, I actually have a whole chapter where I just trace um, musical and visual culture, essentially from the Renaissance to the present day, looking at how the changing um, legal and regulatory environment was responsible for and reflected these kinds of changing norms about our understanding of artistry. And then I took that and I expanded it uh, significantly on the music side. And I published an article earlier this year in the International Journal of Communication where I laid out this kind of five-phase cycle uh, of musical cultural change that involves um, law, economics, aesthetics and codes and uh, concepts of artistry and technology and showed how each link influences the next in this kind of never-ending cycle of dialectics um, that you know is completely generative of cultural change while being completely consistent in the set of relationships that that are doing the work um, so I I don't know about you, but I, I find this stuff endlessly fascinating. Like, I can't not see the mechanisms at work when I engage in culture, so I may as well write about it. Absolutely. It so what are, the, what are the different ones that keep continuing? So there's, there's the legal and, and regulatory environment, uh, which shapes markets. Markets shape codes and practices, aesthetic codes and practices, and those shape technologies cultural technologies, and those shape our concept of artistry, 
which in turn shapes our laws and, and regulations. So I go through about 500 years over the course of four cycles through, uh, through the whole process, you know, so 21 steps beginning and ending with laws and regulations. And, and for each one, specifically talk about how this step leads directly to this step. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming a master history here. Like I, I say very clearly, there, there are other paths that you can chart. Um, but these five moments, as I call them, are always elements in the process of cultural change. That's so interesting. So that's your new book. Um, yeah, it, well, it, it began as a chapter in my new book, and then I kind of expanded it considerably. I, I kind of, I, I, my new book doesn't have a lot of theorization in it. It's more a kind of uh, a critical investigation of uh, of IP as a um, as a social and regulatory framework. Um, but I, you know, I, I was interested. I was. It was really important to me that if people are reading a book about copyright and intellectual property, that they understand all the things that these books typically leave out. And one of the things that they leave out is that copyright is not, you know, um, just a reflection of the needs of artists or of industries, but is itself itself uh, constitutive of cultural change. That culture is shaped by law, and that our understanding of who is an artist and what is a is an artwork. And how we should engage with art is all rooted in um, in the need to justify the contours of our legal system. And whenever we change our laws, there's this ripple effect where we end up having to change our economies and our epistemologies and and our codes to to suit those, um, which of course feeds back into itself, which is the the most interesting thing about it. And it's this never-ending process um, that. Uh, it would be difficult for me to come up with an example of um, of cultural change that didn't involve it in some way. Like, I mean, to talk about the world of visual art, right? It's not an accident that um, impressionism emerges at exactly the moment uh, where uh, copyright gets applied to visual art in the West, right? Um, you, this this notion that uh, that every artist has to have a unique vision. Is is not only is not has not always been uh, a foundational concept in art, but it does justify the attribution of an artwork to a single rights holder, right? So this 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 highly individualistic style actually follows the introduction of a legal mechanism that grants individuals power over artworks, not vice versa. The same thing happens in music, where you get. Um, uh, and and I, um, I I do talk about this uh, pretty extensively in the uh, IJOC article, and I also gave a, a talk about it last year in Berlin. That's on YouTube if you're uh, interested in, in seeing it. Um, but you know, you look at like the era of the so-called great composers, and you know Mozart would steal liberally, or as they called it at the time, borrow liberally from from uh, Handel, and Beethoven would borrow liberally from. Mozart, and this was kind of standard practice. And that doesn't mean that you could borrow whatever you want. There were there were highly complex, tacit rules about permissible and impermissible borrowing, but they weren't mediated by copyright law because copyright law was not yet applied to music um, for the most part. But then you get this kind of moment in time where all of a sudden it is. And composers can no longer borrow freely from one another. So what do they do? They don't just stop borrowing. They start borrowing from people who don't have copyright. 
And that's where you get like the folk music movement and Orientalism and um, uh, you know the the kind of investi- reinvest- reinvestigation of Africa and Latin America and so-called primitivism, and all of these people who don't have lawyers and are not covered by IP laws, their work is what's getting recycled by Western composers and then copyrighted. Um, so again, you know, I, I'm not claiming that it's uh, a one-way mechanism or like the, the you know like a uh, you know, Jared Diamond style like one-size-fits-all explanation for the entire history of culture, but it's really important to understand that the laws that we create seek to justify themselves in ways that fundamentally change the way that we express ourselves and understand ourselves. Well, it's also interesting how people always find a way around the law. (laughs) Absolutely. They always Uh, subvert it in some way. They're like, we need a law for this problem, and then we just like create a whole new kind of subset of issues. Yeah, it was like the old lady that swallowed the fly. Or, you know, I think of it as like water seeking its own level, right? Because the, the, and this is where it comes maybe back to, to you know, your theoretical uh, areas. But, you know, there are certain fundamental psychosocial needs that our species has that will out, uh, right? We need to construct a persona for ourselves. We need to, to feel like we're not alone in the world. We need to make sense of our surroundings. We need to feel like... Um, we are playing some determinative role in our shared social environment and we do all these things communicatively and culturally and to the extent that laws and technologies and and economics set up roadblocks to that and and religions and ideologies set up roadblocks to that people will find a way around it because they have to otherwise we go insane Mm -hmm. would you agree do you think that's a uh you know a a reductionist uh way of approaching it no for sure Lacan said that we have a super ego just so that we can transgress it. <laughs> wow. I love that. I love that too. <laughs> wow. He's got some, he's got that some moments. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I didn't order the copyright book because I just assumed it would be like too technical, like it was about laws and stuff. But I need to understand this this whole thing is really interesting to me as well. Yeah, so so that book, my whole, so I got approached by um, Yale to write like basically a copyright course book, a textbook, an intellectual property, not just copyright. And I didn't want to do that because it sounded boring and because other people have already written it and like I just... Like, you can only write so many books in your life. I didn't want to write that one. But I had this idea that I would write an anti-course book. Like, I would write about all of the things that copyright and IP course books never tell you about that are really important if you actually want to understand it. And I pitched that book, and they actually went for it. So then I had to write it. So, I like, I have a whole chapter just on, like, lobbying and campaign finance and like tracing the the lines between all, all the money that, that IP-based industries spend to shape the law and the way that they've actually succeeded and not succeeded in some cases. I have another one just about inter- international relations, looking at how IP laws and treaties get used as this kind of, I mean, look what we're doing to South Africa right now. Um, I don't know if you've been following this at all, but the U.S. trade representative is basically following through on its threat to bankrupt the entire country because we don't want them to incorporate the same free speech laws into their copyright policy that we enjoy in the United States. Um, it's insane. Um, and it has nothing to do with uh, with copyright or with 
artistry and everything to do um, with establishing and maintaining these um, these structures of uh, international power relations that that relegate um, you know developing nations to to client status with respect to the U.S. and and the EU. Um, and then you know you can understand the behaviors of companies like Brazil and uh, India and China and Russia as being a form of resistance against American hegemony. Not that they don't have their own hegemonies. Obviously, in, in case of China and Russia, especially, they're way, like, these superpowers and these developing nations and coalitions are waging soft war through the medium of intellectual property policy. So, again, <clears throat> you know, I've never read an IP course book that talks about that, and I think that's really important, so I devoted a chapter to that. So, um... Yeah, uh, it it is technically a course book, and I hope lots of people assign it to their students. Um, but it's not full of technical jargon and stuff. It's it's hopefully written in a very accessible and and um, even entertaining way. A lot of storytelling. Words. Oh, great! Stories help. <laughs> Giving examples. No, but we're at such an interesting time because that's a, that's what I've been thinking about as well. Is like you know, how these laws are applied or affect one another when all of our countries are so intertwined at this point through all these technologies and our economies and that sort of thing, and how, what kind of impact that's having and how that's changing things. Absolutely. Globalization, I mean, <clears throat> that term has taken on such a pejorative connotation, but, but to the extent that you can devalue it or debias it, Globalization is is the defining um, uh, causal factor in social action in this era. Um, the the global flow of capital, of information, even of people and physical goods is um, is qualitatively different than it was even half a century ago, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's challenging for for um, for global sovereignty, for individual citizenship for um, cultural exceptionism and isolationism. And so I think so much of what we're seeing, including the Trump phenomenon and the Brexit phenomenon and uh, the Modi phenomenon are all, and the Bolsonaro phenomenon are all responses to this and and kind of attempts to reinscribe localized power onto a globalized uh, infrastructure. And then you know I'm I'm an American Jew and and, and the the American right wing right is is throwing around the term globalist willy nilly right now as a as a kind of um, Nazi echoing synonym for Jew, and um, and it's funny because like I on the one hand like it's terrifying um, to see the resurgence of Nazi rhetoric, but on the other hand yeah, yeah I kind of I kind of am a globalist, <laughs> you know like I I, I think. At the very least, we have to we have to critique um, our rationale for wanting to exert sovereignty and isolationism and exceptionalism and essentialism on our understanding of who we are and what a relationship should be to one another. But by the same token, I don't think that like I'm not advocating for like a like a like a you know a, a one world government you know the way that a lot of the conspiracy theories would suggest. Um, and and I think there are also dangers like. Um, in another article that I wrote last year, I talked about algorithm, algorithmic copyright enforcement. You know, basically the like the bots that they install on um, at ISPs and on big sites like YouTube that will automatically identify 
something that's infringing and then remove it from the site. And what I argued essentially was that those kinds of bots, those algorithmic enforcement of copyright or of other laws are fundamentally incommensurate with democratic processes. For one reason, because they're global in scope and not local in scope. And so they supersede sovereignty. But for uh, another reason, because they collapse the separation of powers. So you basically have one algorithm being like policeman, judge, jury, and executioner um, without any due process or transparency or accountability. Um, and not only does that undermine the separation of powers that we have written into our political systems, but it also normalizes the, undermi the undermining of the separation of powers in a way that makes it seem perfectly rational for somebody to have their life determined by a faceless party who is serving as police, judge, jury, and executioner all at once, which is terrifying. Totally. I think it was Amnesty International, I saw the week bef last week or the week before, said that this kind of mass surveillance is a human rights violation. They like wrote a report on it. Yeah. Um, thankfully, that, that critique is be becoming more and more mainstream. And <clears throat> there are American lawmakers like uh, Ron Wyden and, and Ed Markey who have sounded the alarm and have tried to create a legislative agenda that would do things like ban facial recognition, which is absolutely essential if we're to preserve any autonomy or human dignity. Um, but there's been very little political will. And part of the reason for that is, you know, to go back to the theme of, uh, of my new book, is all of the money that flows in uh, to politics from big tech that actually stands to make hundreds of billions of dollars on this technology and, and on uh, establishing and maintaining these surveillance networks. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what's happening in China or in Russia, you know, with public surveillance and the creation of these kinds of national databases that categorize people in a very minority report kind of way, um, it's very clear what the end game is. Um, and then, you know, if you start thinking about, uh, you know, the the Facebook business plan for the next 10 years and neural interfaces and, and you know, micro, micro capture of, you know, uh, affective and gestural um, and biometric data, not to mention, uh, you know, DNA data. <laughs> like, the whole thing is, uh, this, this century is shaping up to be a doozy. Like, <laughs> You know, yeah. like my, I mean, you know, maybe I'm an alarmist by nature, but my 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 impulse when I learn about a new technology or technological capacity is always to think, okay, what would a bad guy do with this? What would a Bond villain do with it? What would Adolf Hitler do with it? Okay, anything that can be done will be done, uh, without an effective institutional ch check, and without and you can't have an effective institutional check unless there's widespread understanding of its dangers and support for mitigating policy. Um, and we just don't have that right now. Instead, we have this, um, you know, kind of global turn towards isolationism and nativism and, and xenophobia and misplaced trust in, in, um, in strongmen. And, um, you know, that, the, that's a dangerous mix. That never people. goes well. <laughs> yeah. Um. No, and I think that I don't think that that point of view is alarmist at all. I think it's absolutely necessary because, like, you know, we've had the atom bomb, we've had the Holocaust. So, 
uh, clearly we go there, you know, so we need to be thinking right. about where we can go with this because it's, it's likely to happen. Yeah. It's amazing. I actually have a hundred year old grandfather who, um, you know, obviously like everyone his age or every American man his age um, fought in World War II, not very happily, and who, you know, experienced the rise of fascism as an American Jew, child of an immigrant. And, uh, you know, he's my reality check. Mm -hmm. you, you, know, you, you want to understand whether this is fascism, whether this is Nazism, whether this is a threat. Talk to people who experienced it the last time around. And he said from the very beginning, from the, you know, the day that Trump gave his um, they don't send their best people speech, in 2015, mm. you know, he's been my my grandfather's been very clear. Like this, this is the resurgence of the never fully killed American fascist movement, mm -hmm. and uh, and it's you know I think he's I think he um, I think everybody who remembers that era and there are fewer and fewer left. Um, has a very good sense of what's coming and wishes that there was something that they could do to warn us and feels powerless to to express that in a compelling way and and because of that he emails me a lot about politics not in a kind of like the the classic like american like racist grandpa sending you the fox news disinformation but he'll ask me like poignant questions like about like you know the the Mueller uh report and like you know, Facebook policy and social media policy and stuff like he's asking smarter questions than some of my graduate students. Um, and, you know, uh, I wish that I had good answers, but I don't. Yeah, because he's lived it. Um, yeah, I think he, and wrote for him, he was able oh. to like get to a bomber and, and go overseas and like participate in, in 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 war. I mean, it was it was horrific and he hated it and it scarred a whole generation. But at least like they felt like they were doing something maybe productive i don't know maybe i'm i'm being reductionist but like it's i mean there's not even we can't like how are we going to fight the nazis on our own turf how do we get from re, from remix into this oh we were talking about uh we we're talking about we just globalism. go with the unconscious see that's what i said that's the best way to go but oh, I think it's so boring in the Trump era. <laughs> I miss talking about fun things. Well, this is what we are, need to talk about now. But we talk about fun things too, like art and remix and music. Um, but I think it's really interesting. I think you wrote today on Twitter. Yes, it was today. Um, that maybe at least all of this like come has like come to light more now. Like that's something like people can clearly see the dynamics that are happening. Whereas like ten years ago. We were in a bit of a denial. I'm really worried about, because things were pretty bad under uh, Junior Bush, and uh, then we got Obama, and I'm really worried about a similar thing happening where like we just get rid of Trump and then everybody is like, okay, now everything's fixed, because <laughs> it's not. So I don't think we're in, in danger of that happening, um, unfortunately, because I think that the proximate crises that underlie the, the, the Trump crisis are not going to, uh, there's no path to alleviating them. I'm talking about things like climate catastrophe. I'm talking about wealth inequality. I'm talking about pervasive surveillance and corporatization of the public sphere. Um, these, these were on the rise just as much under Obama as they were under W. And, you know, they, they, Trump's agenda clearly 
um, supports them and and he he or his handlers are wise enough to know that he benefits politically from them. Um, so he's probably accelerating them. But it's not like, you know, I mean, I love Elizabeth Warren and I agree with almost everything that she says and I desperately hope that she'll be our next president, but I don't expect her to solve any of these problems. I just expect her to to nudge the ship in a new direction, you know, and uh, uh, depending on which IPCC model you believe, that may or may not be enough to, to avert the worst version of catastrophe. Um, but yeah, you, know, you know, I don't know about you. I've, you know, I have two kids, um, who are still school aged children and, and, uh, you know, it, it, it not only does it make me much more invested in the future of our species, although I always kind of was because as I was saying before, I'm a globalist universalist type, but it makes me, it, it creates challenges in parenting because you don't know what world you're preparing them for. You just know it's a world of change and crisis. So what kinds of skills, like, <clears throat> you know, do they need to get A's in algebra? <laughs> should, should they be, like, doing, like, um, you know, STEM after-school programs? Should they be reading, you know, literature nonstop? Should they be creating art? Should they just be investing and enjoying the moment and meditating and, and playing and, and living their best life? Um, it's, it's really hard to know. And, and, you know, the, the, all of the old cliches about like, you know, you got to get into this school so that you can get into that school so you can get into that profession so that you can make that much money and get your pension. Like that whole track, that 20th century American pathway to the bourgeoisie is like, it's, it's gone. It's out and, the window. Uh, it is, you know, my, my, uh, my, my teenager is, is, uh, has, has totally fallen in love with Broadway just uh, and and he's a he's a wonderful musician and but he's also an enthusiast like you can tell you the capacity of all the broadway theaters and like when you know who was in the original cast of each of the shows and what else they were in and all that stuff and you know when i was a teenager developing a love of of music and and an aspiration to be a musician i was strongly discouraged by my parents from uh, from pursuing it because they, at the time, I think very rightly concluded that it was going to be the harder life for me to, to follow. As it turns out, music has made my life a wonderful thing, and I'm, I'm glad I never stopped. Uh, although I've never, <clears throat> you know, been a superstar musician, I've, I've, you know, had a wonderful music career. And among other things, it connected me with my wife. But I don't even have like that kind of surety for my son. Like I, you know, to me, like my feeling is like, go for it. <laughs> you know, being in love with something and pursuing it sounds like maybe the only reasonable approach to these incipient crises. And because whatever it is, that love is going to connect you to yourself and to other people in a way that's going to allow you to to think structurally, to be authentic, to be empathetic, to um, to develop skills that you're invested in. Um, and, you know, all of those things are, are things that you need in a crisis. Totally. Should we talk about your music projects? You have two with your wife, right? Uh, uh, at, I would, there, I would say there are four active projects. Ooh, <laughs> tell us about them. Mm. 
Well, two of us, she hired me back in the, in the 90s. She had this uh, great um, pioneering ska punk band in, in New York in the early 90s called Agent 99. And she hired me to be her bass player after the original bass player um, had some problems. And then um, we ended up starting two other bands, uh, or kind of neo-soul band in the mid-late 90s called Brave New Girl, uh, which just actually put out its first uh, its uh, its first two new tracks since 2013, uh, about a month ago. Uh, these kind of disco tracks, disco jazz acoustic tracks produced by this uh, German guy named Hans Nieswan, who's actually a great remix producer in his own right. Um, and uh, and then we started a band in L.A. that we later imported into New York called Dubistry. That's like a, a kind of reggae soul breakbeats kind of band. Uh, and then uh, that's still active. We played a couple of festivals this year uh, and then some regular gigs. And then um, she and I are working with this great musician who's a graduate student at AU named Maggie Clifford, who's a kind of a singer-songwriter guitarist. And the three of us are working on what we're calling a climate opera. It's basically an hour-long uh, review with some interstitial narrative that is all about um, climate change and its impact on human society. Um, we're recording a couple of tracks for the um, for the demo right now. And then um, my wife uh, and I just started a new project. Since we're the rest of our collaborators are in New York from Brave New Girl and Dubistry and we've lived in DC for almost five years and so we've gotten tired of trying to drag them down here to play shows or having schlep up there to play shows so we started a new project called The Show The Show with Dania with Dania and Aram her name is Dania and uh, we actually just played our inaugural gig uh, two weeks ago in DC and that's uh, stripped down kind of band where I'm playing uh, upright bass and she's playing ukulele and singing and then we have a, a kit drummer and we're essentially playing a mix of uh, kind of reggae, ska, folk and soul songs depending on the venue and, and audience. That's awesome. I love the upright bass. Yeah, me too. Upright bass is has kept me sane throughout the Trump years, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. Um, yeah, do you play? Are you a musician? Uh, no, I don't play, but I make cut up poetry. Um, <laughs> so I started writing a book on basically the cut and psychoanalysis, so talking about psychoanalytic theories using cut-ups and artists that either use cut-ups like Burroughs and stuff like that, but also could be like film editing or, you know, sampling music or any anything that's like cutting, cutting. Um, and then I decided, you know, I need to understand this better, so why don't I start doing cut-ups? So I started like cutting up my own writing about cut-ups. And then, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. And that was like, I don't know, five years ago, I started cutting up my own writing about cut-ups. And then I kind of put the book down for like the past like, I don't know, four years. And I've just been making cut-up poetry. And then in that time, I met my husband, which is why I'm in Sweden now. Um, but he kind of works, he's a musician and artist and filmmaker. And he works with cut-up ideas as well. So I was in this, like, 
I don't know, psychosis, I'll say, <laughs> where I would like make my cut-up poems and then I would record myself reading the cut-up poems and then I would put them all in iTunes and then I would shuffle the recordings of the readings of my cut-up poems while I was making more cut-up poems. I don't okay, know. Okay, so here's a question. <laughs> By the way, I love this and I can't, can't wait to listen to it all. And I wish I'd done more due diligence prior to our conversation. <laughs> So at least when Geisen and uh, Burroughs were thinking about it, cut-ups were not purely rupturous. They were they they created rupture in order to create a space of possibility, where new meanings that were independent of the structuring authorities uh, of consensual public language would be able to emerge. Right? You create cracks in the architecture, and then prohibited meanings rush in to fill the space. Mm -hmm. Have you had any prohibited meanings? Have you had any discoveries from your cut-up adventures? Oh yeah, all the time. Especially, I, I, I felt this, that, that sometimes you're like in a space where it's just happening constantly and it feels like the cut-ups are talking to you. Um, and then sometimes it's just like more regular kind of collage art making. So it seems to ebb and flow. Um, like, give me an example, if you don't mind. Oh, well, I'll tell you a good one that, that was that happened on early on since I'm a psychoanalyst. So Lacanian psychoanalysis differs from Freudian. The big like clinical difference is that they cut the session. They'll like end the session early and throw people out. So it's like an interruption, um, which is also interpretation. And when I started doing these cut ups in the beginning, you know, sometimes the words don't I don't cut up like around the word. Sometimes you cut in the middle of a word. So when I put it back together, two words came together and it said interruption, which I thought Ooh, was pretty I love that. cool. I almost said genius, it's but now I'm self-conscious about that word. <laughs> interruption. Interruption. So that was a good one. Yeah, that is really good. Mm -hmm. So do you think, I mean, so in, in, in Burroughs' cosmology, both control and consciousness were disindividuated and alien entities, right? And we're the substrate. You know, it's almost platonic, right? We're these receptacles that consciousness kind of comes into, it expresses itself, then it moves on, or not even then, simultaneously it moves on. Um, do you have any, A, do you think that there may be truth in that? And B, have your cut up uh, experiments giving you any in insight into the existence of consciousness independent from the human substrate? Um, well, the way I've been looking at it, as far as that, like, you know, like you said, like language is a virus and that sort of thing, is that in the in the Lacanian ideas, it's that we're all like born into language and inscribed with language, uh, like our bodies are inscribed with language, so where you assume like your arm is is not necessarily where your arm is because there's all these different signifiers and things inscripted into your body. So I've been looking at it more like through that angle. So what does that mean in practice? Um, well, I guess it's the way you would listen to a symptom. Um, You'd have to listen to the way somebody's using language to figure out kind of where their symptom is coming from, not overtly, not what they're overtly talking about, but what's kind of underneath the surface. 
Um, and I think the disrupted se session helps in that way. I don't disrupt my session, but I think the, the Lacanian idea is interesting um, because it, it gets people out of their kind of day-to-day -day narrative that they already really know, but they're seeing themselves say anyway, and gets them to like cut that out basically <laughs> so they can actually speak instead of like kind of saying what they're already basically like programmed to say through their life and development and the society they've been born into. So what's the origin of the actually? Is, I mean, do you believe in individuals? That's a good question. I go back and forth. Yeah, I don't know exactly what I believe. Um, and I think, uh, I think that it's more, I think that we're more socially linked than we think. And I think that we're definitely more linked through our uh, parents and ancestry than at least in American West we talk about. Um, and that we Especially really need to... genetic stuff that's coming out. Yeah, I think we really need to come, come to terms with that more and discuss that more. And transgenerational transmission of traumas. You know, my, my first patient, uh, my first analysis uh, was a like, grandchild of someone that was in the Holocaust. And uh, she had all sorts of symptoms that were related, even though she didn't know consciously until she had started analysis and then started talking to her family about it. Because they actually, when they emigrated, decided to like completely negate the past and like try to make a new life you know and change their name and everything like that um so so there's a lot transmitted unconsciously that people more than people i think like to realize <laughs> i think that's absolutely true i mean it, it jives with my experience of being alive and with uh, my knowledge of the people who i'm close to you know it, it's my my wife is is African American, and as I mentioned before, I'm I'm a, a Jew of recent immigrant vintage on uh, some sides, and um and you know I I think we both carry that epigenetic capacity to reproduce the trauma of our immediate ancestors, and our kids are so hypersensitive, and it's not like a it's not what I would call a cultural thing. It's not like we have a family culture. We weren't like the kind of parents who'd be like you have to purell your whole body before you touch our children and you're not allowed to climb in the playground. And like we, we weren't phobic or like at least consciously phobic or precious or like overly protective of our kids. We were very, very much like as New York city kids of the seventies and eighties, we were like, you know, a certain amount of exposure to the world can be a very good thing. Um, and yet they both turned out in their own very different ways to be so hypersensitive. I mean, my son is home today with he has um, he has uh, chronic migraines, uh, which both of us get also. But um, he gets them even more than we do. And he becomes so sensitive to, to sound, to touch, to light. Um, and it's both a blessing and a curse, you know, in terms of its impact on your daily life. Like it's part of, I think, why he loves music so much. Um but also it, it incapacitates him when um, when there's too much information or, or or too much information that he can't reconcile. And I, I you know I wonder how much of that is is that legacy of trauma um, being passed down. Like have we created like a perfect storm? And I wonder whether other couples whose family histories combine different kinds of trauma find similar things with their children. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a psychoanalyst in New York named Stephen Weissner, and he talks about um, Freud's early um, studies of like telepathy and that sort of thing. And he explains it in this way that like like there's nothing like supernatural or anything about these things that Freud was studying. It's more like a way that people develop if they have like you know really abusive parents or really narcissistic parents or some really traumatized parents, um, and they just become like hypersensitive and able to kind of uh, foresee what's about to happen is a survival mechanism, is a way to like make themselves feel safe in the world and that sort of thing. And then it gets like mistranslated into something, some other idea. So I thought that was, that was interesting and different take. It's not as unconscious, but it's a similar sort of, um, yeah, sensitivity so, so, to the world. So I feel, I feel like I'm getting a free psychoanalytic session with you <laughs> by doing this interview. Um, because I've always been a, a futurist, right? I mean, before I was in academia, my job was literally, I was a, a tech and media industry consultant, like writing five-year projections and and talking about how changes in technology would create changes in culture and, and industry. And I still do that in a very different way in my, in my um, academic work. Uh, and I, I'd never, I've always... This is going to sound like a stupid name-dropping anecdote, but it's not. I was once at a literacy event about 20 years ago with Spalding Gray, um, the monologist and an actor. And uh, this is the only time I ever met him. He was a super nice guy. Uh, him and his wife were there. And he was doing the thing of not wanting to talk about himself, so he was asking me about myself. And you know, I was in my 20s, and I was working as the tech consultant and analyst. And I tried to describe to him what I do. And I went on for like two or three minutes. Minutes and I was a little nervous. You know, I loved his work, and I was like, "And and you see, I I I try to look at what's coming down the pike and explain to." And he stops me at a certain point and goes, "Oh, you're a futurist." And I was like, "Yeah, that's what I am. I'm a futurist." Um, and so I I wonder. I mean, I never thought about uh, about the psychoanalytic uh, um, connotations of futurism as as a potential reflex for self-preservation, but that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. That's that's fascinating. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. Well, Should we stop you know, there? Was there anything else that you want to mention that we didn't get to? Any oh, the, events or books or projects coming up? I could I could have this conversation with you for like forever. <laughs> uh, I feel like we only skated along the surface. But um, we can always uh, do another one. <laughs> it's true. Mm. I'd say definitely check out the new book. It just came out this year, The Essential Guide to Intellectual Property. Uh, those two new Brave New Girl tracks that I was talking about, produced by Hans Nieswand, they're everywhere: Spotify, Apple Music. And I they're can called, link everything uh, across with the podcast. The... Oh, that'd be super! Yeah, across the... around the world, and um, I want to take you to Brazil. Um, and then, uh, yeah, look out for hopefully next year we'll be um, premiering that the climate change opera uh, that Dania and uh, and Maggie and I are working on, and that's got some really beautiful songs in it. Um, uh, I've, we've we've all found it very uh, very uh, affecting uh, trying to grapple with this, you know, almost um, 
you know, this 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 level of uh, crisis that that you can barely encompass in your mind, just thinking about the scope of devastation that is almost ensured at this point and trying to think about not only uh, humanity's history, but also humanity's future. I just yesterday recorded the the upright bass for uh, for the demo version of this song of Maggie's called uh, um, 2393 A.D., that uh, is kind of an oral recounting of the people in this isolated village of the the uh, the events that that brought about the climate apocalypse. Um, so anyway, uh, it might not be a laugh a minute riot, but uh, but it'll be a really beautiful musical um, set of compositions and and hopefully public events. And um, as always, I try to make almost everything that I do free and access and broadly accessible. I'm very committed to open access. So if anybody has trouble finding any of my articles or anything, let me know and I'd be happy to share it with you. Great. I, I love that. I want I um I really want to read the one that came from the chapter in the new book. And I'm going to watch the YouTube video, which I will also connect to this. Um, but oh. everything about like what's coming up in the future will be on your website, right? Yes, uh, I have a website. It's just my last name, sinreich.com. Mm-hmm. Good. Now, when I've been for this book that I'm writing, I wanted to read a friend's article on Scansion, which is like the like the Lacanian cut, you know, throwing people out of the session. He calls it Scansion, and um, I wanted to read a friend's article, and just to like <laughs> download it for 24 hours was like 42 dollars. <laughs> it's crazy. It's just like. This this is what Andrew Schwartz was talking about, you know. This is why he yeah. did what he did. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you think about the fact that it's not just it's not it's not about self promotion. It's about sharing the product of your intellectual labors, which were largely publicly subsidized, whoever you are, with the public at large. Uh, you know, it's it's a fundamental. I mean, this whole language of um, access to knowledge is, I think, deserves a lot more. Um, widespread attention than it gets. Um, I, you know, we are living in this era where we have the capacity to not only food and ha- uh, feed and house and, and uh, provide health care for every living person on the planet, which we don't, um, but we could also make the entire store of human knowledge publicly accessible for perpetuity. And somehow we just break our backs creating systems to prevent that from happening. And it's it's just a tragedy. Yeah, it really is. But Why do you want to relax. do all this work so that we can just have it behind a $50 paywall, you know? Like. That's kind of the subject to do one last quasi-plug, kind of the subject of what my next book is going to be. Um, it's based on another article that I just had out a few weeks ago called The Carrier Wave Principle. And the basic argument of that article and the book to come, which is going to have lots of awesome stories in it, um, is about how... Um, information that we're not even aware of gets encoded into all of our media and cultural artifacts. And then different kinds of interests produce the ability to extract that information and turn it into knowledge. And that power to decide what gets extracted and how from where is essentially the new architecture of social power. So it's almost like the, the, the Foucauldian kind of knowledge power dynamic, but applied to like an STS kind of understanding of sociotechnics. And, um, and, and, you know, and realizing that, that we have to think proactively 
about the kinds of knowledge that are going to be produced from everything. Like I've actually been, I've been actively thinking about it during our conversation right now. So while we've been talking, I got a couple of buzzes on my Apple watch that indicated that I had important messages. And I clicked over to my chat window to see what my wife wanted to tell me. And, um, you know, I also clicked on uh, my schedule to make sure that we weren't running into any other things. And as I was doing that, it occurred to me that the video that you post of this interview will show me doing those things in the reflection of my reading glasses right here. And if you think that's crazy, actually, just a few weeks ago, this Instagram celebrity was successfully cyber stalked because one of her fans um, looked at the video and discovered from her glasses where she was standing on the street and was able to locate her physically in the world. Wow. Right. So that's an example of the carrier wave principle as we call it in action, right? Is the is the 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 use of these these artifacts to create forms of knowledge that they were never intended or anticipated to create. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Aram Sinreich. For more, please visit his website, sinreich.com. That's S-I-N-N-R-E-I-C-H.com. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
Sexuality is a force of nature. A force of nature. It cannot be contained. It cannot be contained. Get up. Get up. Identity is your Identity only is possession. Your only as a being possessed, as a being be possessed, possessed by yourself, by, yourself. by any self, every self you ever dreamed of, every self you were ever afraid of. Stop it! Stop it! Stop being possessed by characters written by others. Delete them. Delete behavioral software written by others. Write your own code. Stop. And rebuild yourself from the founders. Every connection, even your closest friendship. Reevaluate, reconnect. Choose for yourself. Cut yourself up. See who you really are. See who is really there. The more detached one is from a role in someone else's script, the easier it becomes to create a new script. Your script. Ask yourself, is this you? Is this contrived character you? Who is directing you? Who is directing who? There are more than one of you. So choose another you. Start shooting your script. Every man and woman is a man and woman. Redesign yourself. Redesign yourself. Redefine yourself. Taste the sweet electricity of androgyny on your tongue. Who is directing you? Put away your toys and there are more than one of you. Choose another you. We are but one bitch. Shooting your own script. We declare war against all binary systems. We embrace total freedom for all identities. electricity and impossible. Destroy gender. Destroy the control of DNA. Destroy the expected. We are but one bitch. Struck by its elegance, they say, as their double helix jumps. Jumps from lab to lab rat. Two spines that go their separate ways. We embrace total freedom. Nothing short of a total gender 
and it's both possible and In the beginning, all were perfect. The first man, destroy gender. the first woman, destroy the, control the first woman DNA. was the first and man. The expected until the whispering began. Never before has a generation felt such a rage to live. Destroy gender. Destroy the control of DNA and the expected. Forget not that once upon a time, creation was a divine act. A divine calling. Calling to According to you, art is its mirror. Art Nothing short of a total gender. Life cracks every mirror. In the beginning, as shattered shards. The first throw off the, first the shackles of experience, defined as one. Defined by someone. End gender. Break sex. There are more than one of you. Shuffle the cards. Shuffle the selves. Throw that one away. Now pick another. There is no reason to be someone different every day. No Identity is theft. No Identity is theft. This A N D. Forget not. This D N A. Once upon a time, this strand was by act. Strand dead. Dead on arrival. Creation. Is calling to us. It's calling to Slapped. you. Slapped Art into shape by your deliverance. Professional doctors slapping you into it. life. Cracks into Ignoring every mirror. Falls a shattered shard. They want you cutting us to up. conform Making to us a pre-recorded software. Also able. It's been worn thin through our ages, through our shadows stories of experience, and it has but it one purpose one, control. One, gender, one way of being. Do not supply each demand, do Break not obey sex. each command. There are more than one of you. Do not. So shut all the cards. Pick one. Throw it away. Change the way to perceive. Throw it away. And change all memory. Keep picking. See what possession is a greater Identity part of that. is theft. Be strong. Identity Be is theft. Your Self. Inherited identity is destruction. We are ultra-genetic terrorists. This A-N-D.
One man's man is another man's woman. One man's woman is another man's man. So on the self. Adding, adding infinitum. Permutate, mutate, change your state. Mutation is a law. No evolution without mutation. Well, you know, they gave me this DNA and they told me there was nothing I could do about it, she said. Well, I tried returning it and they just laughed and turned away, she said. It's a strict policy, they said. We do not give back anything once you've got your program. I'm very sorry, but the DNA is there now. Well, it's been programmed and there's nothing you can do. Obey each command. That's what they said. I didn't like that at all. A program. Protect a program. Looking at that big picture. Looking for your own picture. Change. Looking at a picture, change. looking at that picture. Change the way to is it persisting? All memory. Is it resisting? Look at that picture. Look at that picture. Memory. Yes. Hello. Yes. Hello. Is the greater part of valor. There is no so reason. You be should strong, ever run out yourself. of people to be. Do not be possessed, Lady J. DNA ANB stripped of you. You are free. Stripped of who you are. Stripped of what you are. DNA is helpless. Speechless, nausea, directionless. Where are you in this process? DNA. Really? It's just a visiting parasite. Mutation is a visiting evolution program. Dignitary. So change your state. It's those state your change. And all these marvelous parallel characters constantly reinventing you, permutating you, taking turns and demanding life for you, each with their own agenda, waiting for you to listen to them, to be each of them. Every day, any way, just be different them. Acknowledge them. They love to be alive. All these other you. They love to be alive. And they have a right to be considered.